Continuation of a Dog's Religion by Joel Robitaille, Chapter 2, Page 30. If only we could move far away, she whispered. If only there was a way to start over again. A single tear formed in her eye, overflowed, and then slowly navigated the structure of her cheekbone leaving a glossy streak along her face before bending on her chin and falling to the floor with an isolated patter. I felt it splash within me, over me, and under me, as if I were being baptized for the first time. At that point, I began waking up to the allegory behind the dream, the subtext, the underlying truth implicit to the writing of our relationship. All of a sudden I felt responsible for her hopelessness and wished that I could go back a year or two in time. Then I wouldn't have to live with the knowledge that we could have avoided this whole mess if I had voiced the feelings in my heart from the beginning. As it was, I found that the moment between us that I had desired for all those months proved difficult to swallow. It was shocking. Given my feelings for Emily... It's easy to think that I would have declared my intentions to her on the spot. Believe me, I wanted to tell her that she meant everything to me. I wanted to reassure her that the sharing of her feelings with me was the right thing to do. But I felt awkward and uncomfortable from the sudden injection of seriousness between us. There was a great deal of pressure in the recognition that we had encountered one of those shared moments in a relationship that tend to be called defining. Our relationship was at a crossroads no matter how we cut it. and There was a sense of no turning back. With this in mind and being possessed of little skills as a counselor or comforter, no better course of action came to mind than to kiss her. Yes, I leaned right over, took her into my arms, and then kissed her with an insistence that left little room for negotiation. It took her a second to comprehend this decision before she added motion to the embrace, her eyes wide with surprise, then slowly closing and yielding to acceptance. Although this gesture removed from me the discomfort of conversation, I spent the duration of the kiss wondering how my decision was going to change things between us. I didn't wonder long. And Emily suddenly pushed me away. What are you doing? I thought this was what you wanted, I explained, totally confused. No, Grant. Haven't you been listening to me? What is it, then? It's time you stop dangling my heart over the abyss, she replied angrily. What does that mean? I asked, even more confused. My lack of insight frustrated Emily beyond her, beyond her means of restraint. Damn it, she cried. Don't you get it? I'm not one of the, of your dogs. Before I could respond, she stormed out of the room and slammed the door behind her, shaking the whole house with the impact, then scorching her tires as she tore down the street in a blur of color. Having watched her disappear, I sat down and tried to calm myself by repeatedly playing the discussion in my head. I just couldn't seem to get a handle on it, though. 
On the one hand, I wanted Emily to come to me of her own volition because I imagined that our togetherness was imminent, as if written in the stars. And yet, when she'd made that this first step, I felt a resistance within me. The quiet house felt like judgment, and no amount of mental rearranging could change what had occurred. Seeing that I couldn't solve this on my own, I gave up and decided to visit Dan Tamer. Tamer ran a pizza joint in town, the only place he was easily accessible to all his friends. Fortunately for me, he savored my misadventures like a cold beer after a hard day of work. The truth is, it made him feel better to describe my misery and then hear him chuckle as though my problems were no more of a crisis than an itch. He could provide me with a laugh of context that I desperately needed, giving me the perspective to make crystal clear decisions apart from personal feelings. When I walked into the restaurant, Brent, of all people, was sitting at one of the tables with his pals, apparently getting some food before work. The table in front of him looked like it had hosted feasting vultures. I told him to join me so that I could introduce him to the chef. When we walked into the kitchen, I was greeted in familiar fashion. Old man, said Tamara, a bit grain on his face. This is Brent, I said. He's a new volunteer at the shelter. You don't look like a Brent, Tamara observed, looking the boy over. We need to give you a real name. Brent's just fine, said the kid. No, no, trust me, we can help you out, Tamara urged. Then turned to me. He looks like a chicken, doesn't he? With that hair, he looks like a chicken, sort of. Brent did not look impressed. Bet the ladies love you, don't they, Tamara asked Brent, giving him a wink. I need my friends to peel them off me, Brent replied, flashing his arrogance. That's good, said Tamar. We're going to raise you right. No, you're not, I said. You want a job, kid? Tamar asked, not afraid of putting a new acquaintance on the spot. A job? Tamar nodded. Sure, come work for me. It's easy to see that I can instill some values in you. You have all the makings of a warrior. Wouldn't you say, old man? He turned to me, grinning. No, he doesn't, I objected. Tell him to go to hell, Brent. You know how I live vicariously through my warriors, Grant? Keeps me young. He swiveled back to Brent. My pizza warriors go out into the world and do me proud. I'll show you how to live right. I've had an abundance of women in my life, and with my guidance I promise that your lonely nights will be over. Enough, Dan, I said, trying to put my foot down. Seriously, come see me, Brent, said Tamar, ignoring me. I need a new lad for prep. I need to talk to you, I interjected. Tamar nodded. What is it? I... Wait, Grant, Tamar interrupted, turning his attention to Brent. Don't you know when you've been dismissed, you sloppy little fool? What the poor kid asked almost looked frightened. If I hadn't known Tamar so well, I might have felt sorry for Brent. Listen, chicken, I'll tell you and I have an answer for me. Get the hell out of my kitchen. I was just leaving, Brent replied cockily quickly regaining his composure. He even took the time to pour himself some pop from the fountain before giving us a sly grin and strolling out of the kitchen. I'll beat that spirit out of him, Tamar mumbled, but looking happy at the prospect of a new addition to his staff. So what's that all about? It's about Emily. Go on, Tamar encouraged. She cracked today, I confessed. What do you mean? She tried to guilt me into saying I love her. 
Tamara started to laugh. What can I tell you? Women are crazy. I keep telling you this, and yet you ignore the evidence. So what did you do? Throw it back in her face? Not exactly. After what she's put you through, didn't you tell her to go to hell? No. Oh, you're a pathetic man, you spineless fool. Don't tell me you bought into the insanity. I actually felt really guilty, Dan. You know how I am when it comes to Emily. I don't want to hear it, Tamar said in disgust. You're so pathetic I can hardly look at you. You had a prime opportunity to take control and you squandered it. What do you mean, I asked, starting to laugh. I'm not that pathetic, am I? Haven't you listened to a word I've said all these years? Women need black and white. They need the firm hand, not the permissive admirer, the pushover. Well, what would you have done in my position? Don't make it about me, old man, said Tamar, shaking his head. If we look at the facts, it's easy to see that, that up until this point, you've been willing to sell out for the little you know what. And he made a triangle shape with his hands. Maybe, I said, considering the possibility, I'm just not sure what to do now. Of course you're not, Tamar said with understanding in his voice. You're at a crossroads, buddy. The only way to proceed is to know exactly what you want. It's difficult. If I settle for Megan, I know what I get, and she's predictable. Emily, on the other hand, might never be a sure thing. Still, she could become the joy of my life. It's equally possible that she'll be my absolute ruin, though. You know what I think, old man? What? I think you're shallow. Perhaps superficial would be a better word. How can you say that? Easy. If Emily wasn't so attractive, would you really even be giving this any consideration? It's not her beauty, I insisted. Oh, I beg to differ. I've known you for a long time, and you're superficial. I couldn't help but smile. I'm not going to argue with you, Tamer, but you haven't told me what you really think. Well, what do you want to do, he asked, glancing around the kitchen. I thought about this for a second. In all honesty, Emily hasn't convinced me that she's ready to be with me. She's only convinced me that she doesn't want to be with Megan. Doesn't want me to be with Megan. Tamer took a pizza out of the oven, sliced it up, and dished it off to one of his beautiful young waitresses to be transported to the dining room. Judging by the scowl on the girl's face, she didn't seem to appreciate me diverting her manager's attention. You know what I think, said Tamer, looking very serious. Save yourself. Disentangle yourself entirely from both of them. Maybe then you'll actually play more than two games of tennis with me a year. I just can't, I said. I'm too old to cut my losses. He shrugged. Well then, play it for all it's worth. Technically, you're dating Megan and Emily. It's just your roommate. You're right, I said, feeling relieved. If I don't do anything, things will work themselves out on their own. Tamer shook his head. What a surprise. So much turmoil over a little bit of this. And he made the triangle shape again. Continuation of Dog's Religion by Joel Robitaille, page 36. Brent was waiting for me when I got to work. I unlocked the door and we punched in together. I was beginning to enjoy having a protege. It was a rainy night. Not that this made a difference. 
The singular beauty of the shelter was the weather did not exist in the world within a world. Sunshine, rain, or snow, it never really mattered because you could never be aware of the outdoors once you entered the facility. It was like voluntarily condemning yourself to a harsh reality you would never consider otherwise. The rules were different, and you were very conscious of your spirit and the fragility of your physical existence as well as your beliefs. The shelter was something you could never learn to understand from a book, no matter how detailed the description. After Brent put the coffee on, he approached me while I was sitting at my desk. Was your friend Tamar serious today, he ventured. Unfortunately, yes, he's been looking for a peasant to beat on for a few months now. Do you think I should take him up on the offer? I thought about this for a second and then gave the kid some context. If you work for Tamar, I want you to understand that you're getting a lot more than just a manager. It's more like you're being adopted into his family. But being a member of Tamar's family is a unique experience. He'll always be there for you, and yet he'll steer you wrong for the sport of it. He'll respect you personally, but he'll seize the opportunity to laugh at your missteps. You also might think twice about bringing your girlfriend around him, because you'll find that his, he communicates with women on a level you could never comprehend. Really? Women come from the far and wide for his advice. They cry on his shoulder, they seek his approval, and yet it's amazing how much they respect and disrespect him at the same time. Tamer has a reputation, both good and bad, and it's hard for people to reconcile the sheer logic of his advice, which comes from a truly good nature, with the side of him that has earned him a dubious reputation. I want to work for this guy, Brent said with his conviction. I want to see how he lives his life, especially what's in his bag of tricks. Tanner has no magical bag of tricks. He just knows how to talk to women and make each one feel special. If he wasn't my friend and my girlfriend wasn't spending time with him, I know I would be concerned. Every man in town is aware of Dan Tamer and prays that his girlfriend never crosses Tamer's path. How can you guys be buddies then? You seem so different in philosophy. It's amazing you get along. I would do anything for him. I've learned more about myself because of him than from anyone else I've known. I used to work side by side with him at the restaurant, and it was an educational experience for both of us. And what's funny is that neither one of us had impacted each other's views in the least. Some would call that futility. But I think that it's through relating to each other that we find out what we truly believe. I know that I believe because of him, and he knows that he believes because of me. But keep my girlfriend from him, Brent asked, if you know what's good for you. When we started at our clean-up, I gave Brent a heads-up that tonight was going to be difficult, the type of night that robs a person of something precious, namely the ignorance of something transpiring behind the fabric of society is unavoidable and yet unconscionable according to human concepts of justice. Simply put, the hourglass on your porcupine's life was up. Brent, if he chose to stay, was going to gain insight into the canine reality of dwelling in a cash-tight world. There is a reason why people are much more upset when a dog gets killed in a movie than a movie star. 
We're desensitized to seeing a person die on the screen, but a dog in trouble screams to our soul for protection. The injustice is that a dog, the conceptual embodiment of innocence and royalty, should never end up a casualty of human conflict. Their whole lives are like a suspended childhood. That's to say very few dogs get to depend on their own devices. Justice is in the shelter meant administering injustice. The dogs we housed were definitely victims of human affairs, yet the consequences for failing to find a home remained theirs and theirs alone. There was nothing more we could do. We only had so much space and we only had so much funding. My cell phone rang. It was Tamara. Hey Grant, I got it. I got a name for that kid. We're talking about something serious here, I muttered, glancing at Brent. It'll only take a second, Tamara insisted. Go ahead then. Geezer, he said. He began to laugh. Gizzard? No, geezer. Remember that chicken we incubated and raised back in high school with the ridiculous crown on its head? Okay, I nodded, starting to form a memory. Remember what happened when we went to eat it? Yeah, he had so much personality that we wouldn't do it. So we gave him his freedom and chose another instead. So what do you think? I think you nailed it, I replied, grinning. It suits him perfectly. Make sure a geezer comes to see me about the job. You got it, man. I put my phone away. Who was that, asked Brent. It was Tamer. He's coming up with a name for you in the event that you work for him. But I think I'll adopt it myself. What? Look, geezer, we need to get a move on. I still plan on having you out on time tonight. Geezer, he objected. That's what two geniuses came up with. There's no sense in fighting it. Once Tamer decides these things, everybody pretty much follows his lead. Now let's get working. When we entered Porcupine's pen, he was curled up in the corner sleeping soundly. Big, broad torso with pointy tufts of fur, ears with satellite maneuverability, wet, intricately patterned nose, chestnut eyes, big paws with polished black nails, whiskers upon whiskers, little upside-down V above each eye for eyebrows, raspberry tongue, red collar, one of the few items he considered his, thick, prideful tail. I patted my dog for him to walk alongside of us, my leg for him to walk alongside of us. He seemed slow, cumbersome, as he followed us into the office and flopped down on the floor. And yet, undoubtedly, he was happy about the special attention. As I typed my notes, I drank some coffee while Brent stretched out on the floor beside him and stroked his soft ears. I thought about what Emily had said. The connection seemed obvious. She was accusing me of putting her in that same situation as the dogs, either form a relationship or be extinguished. The question became, how could she not see my selfless motivation for working at the shelter, or the home I provided her, for that matter? My life was not delicate, dedicated to observing dogs fail. The reality of my job, outside of my personal control, was that I could only provide dogs with hope for so long before I was forced to kill them. So, what did she mean when she chose the word abyss? When you break it down... Can't the abyss be considered the dark emptiness that's the black drop for hope's silvery glimmer? Or does the abyss exist by virtue of hope's external presence? Grant, said Brent, disturbing my concentration, 
The boy was looking up at me from his sprawled position next to Porcupine. What is it? I just can't believe there's nothing we can do, he said innocently. In my throat I could feel the lump forming that I always get when the moment draws near. At this point, kid, you always ask yourself whether you did everything you could to help this dog. But either way, the outcome is what it is. But I love him. Give him this, I said, producing a chocolate bar I had in my pocket and flipped it to him. Brent removed the wrapping and presented the chocolate to Porcupine. It was resorting to see the flicker of excitement in the dog's eyes as he tried to make sense of his special gift. I then observed the joy the chocolate bar gave him, from the first sniff to the gentle manner to which he took it from Brent's hand, to the way he lay down with it and broke it up between his paws before wolfing down every piece, still licking his chops well after it was gone. He clearly savored the experience. Whether chocolate was unhealthy for him or not made very little difference at the time. When he was done, he looked at Brent and then to me, as if expecting another. No more, boy, I said, showing him my empty hands. Porcupine nuzzled me, insistent, then looked up expectantly, his tail wagging. It's time, Brent, I said. Technically, you're not supposed to be a part of this but I'm leaving this up to you. By the look on the kid's face, it was obvious he was conflicted, but he replied, I feel it's something I need to experience. All right, let's be done with it then. I reached down and lifted Porcupine up, then carried him to my arms as a shepherd carries a lamb. It had become my symbol to carry the animal on the last steps of the journey. Porcupine was heavy, but he didn't resist. There was no struggle as we walked him through the bay, past his empty pen, past all the other dogs and into the room where death and resurrection were one at the same. One and the same. I put Porcupine on the surgical table and gathered the instruments that would end his life. He sat there panting, looking quite content and utterly trusting. Are you sure you're okay with this, I asked Brent who at this point looked absolutely sick. I can't handle this. What kind of vet will I be, Brent replied. Well, come over here then and pet him while I do this. Look in his eyes and tell him that he's a good boy and that you'll love him. Brent obeyed me and began putting the old time timer with trembling hands. Petting the old timer with trembling hands. In such cases, it feels like the dog understands what's going on because you project your own heartbreak into the, his situation. It's a, such a bizarre phenomenon because you believe the dog is sad about his fate and yet stoic about it at the same time. When I walked over with the needle in my hand, Brent stopped me for a second. It just occurred to me, he said, there's no dog waiting to take his place. That's true, but there will be. He looked confused. Well, shouldn't we delay this, at least until another dog gets brought in? I mean, can't we extend his time? It's not about space, I explained. But sadly, we could give him an intermittent amount of time. But I know from experience that nobody's going to adopt him. Porcupine's not the adoptable type. And waiting around isn't going to change anything. Brent nodded in understanding, but I wondered how a young mind could wrap itself around such a cruel fact of life. Before he could provide further objections, I worked the needle into Porcupine. 
The dog gave only a small yelp and then composed himself, panting away and still seeming to enjoy the unusual attention. I stroked his fur myself, and it wasn't long before the light disappeared from his kind brown eyes. As he passed away, I whispered in his ear, I'll miss you, good friend. We'll see each other on the other side. Porcupine's spirit departed quietly in our presence. Afterwards, I put a white sheet over him, showing him the same respect people afford each other. I would go through the disposal process by myself later that night. Brent was quiet and had a blank, almost spaced out expression. Without a word, he left the room and closed the door gently behind him. It was pretty easy to tell that he needed some breathing room. When I checked on him a few minutes later, he was gathering his cleaning supplies and I could see by his body language that it was still best to leave him alone. Once I pushed my concern for him to the side, as always, my grief for the animal came upon me in full force. I went to the bathroom and splashed some cold water on my face, but that didn't stop me from experiencing the mixture of wretched and hot tears that always followed such an occasion. No matter how you look at it, it was such a cheap, petty, and unjust end to a life. About an hour later, after I had a chance to compose myself, I approached Brent while he was cleaning a pen. Are you okay? Do you want to talk about it? I asked. I'm all right, he insisted, but didn't make any eye contact. Just leave me alone. It seemed fair to oblige him. For the rest of the night, we did our own thing. We were both lost in our own thoughts and feelings. It was hard to deny that the awkwardness had entered the picture that I had no real answers for anyone. By the time his shift was done, I could see that Brent had more color in his face. So I decided to approach him, but one last time while he was getting his stuff together to go home. This is about as bad as it gets, I said, trying to be reassuring. I've never felt such a pit in my stomach, he replied, struggling to find his voice. He still appeared kind of dopey and distracted. Nobody can be prepared for it, and you never become used to it. When I said this, he looked at me thoughtfully for a second, like he was struggling to articulate an idea that his eyes seemed to regain some of their lost intensity. The burden you mentioned, he began. I think I know what you mean now. Go on. Porcupine's life ended peacefully and without any fear, and yet afterwards we're left behind to shoulder the guilt. Brent was starting to understand me, but only partly. For me, the sacrifice was the whole process, from the start to the finish. Every night I sacrificed my personal resistance so that my spiritual eye could see, catch a silver glimmer of understanding in the empty black space. There's always a point where the burden is shifted, I explained. When they're adopted, that's the ideal shift in responsibility. But they have to be put down, the weight of responsibility is on us. When it comes down to it, everything we do here is for them, even when they fail to find a home. But it's so unfair, Brent protested. It is unfair, I agreed, and I can see how affected you are. But just because you're sensitive doesn't mean you can't be a good vet. It's a calling, a vocation, not a job. And if you can't show people that you care about their pets, then you're meant to do something else.
Being a vet is a very different kind of burden. I realize that now. In what way? I know that helping people part ways with their old and sick pets is part of the responsibility. I think I can handle that. But putting healthy dogs to sleep is extraordinarily painful. A knife through the heart. Porcupine didn't deserve this. No dog deserves this. Don't worry, kid. I won't ask you to participate again. Haven't you been listening? I want to help animals. The old, the sick, the abandoned. Well, if you can handle this, I'd say you're one step closer. I do have one question, though. What's that? What do you do to cope when you go home afterwards? How do you find comfort? I tell you, but you're not. You're going to laugh. I might not, Brent said, managing a weak smile. When it becomes too much for me to deal with, I consider the psychic on television who assures people their dogs' souls are immortal and will be reunited with their families. And you believe her? I know she's right. How can you know for sure? Because of how desperately I want it to be true. Later that evening, I sat outside on the steps of the building. It wasn't raining anymore. It wasn't. The moon was out, grappling with the dark cloud. There was a breeze, and I could see the bluish glow of televisions emanating from the window of the houses along the block. There was a peaceful aura to the summer night. The opera of Dionysian crickets and Apollyon frogs could be heard faintly in the background. Rhythms and lyrics. So I just happened to be outside when Emily showed up with a picnic basket of food. She plopped down beside me on the steps, and there was no exchange of words between us for a few seconds. We need to talk about what happened today, she said, at last, opening the basket and passing me a soda. I have nothing to say, I replied, feeling uncomfortable and nervous. How was work tonight? I made okay tips. That's good. Another awkward pause followed. It was... Nice out tonight, so I thought I would bring you some food, she explained. That's very nice of you, I replied, a little wary of my words after what had been said earlier. We sat there for a few seconds, and I went through the basket. It was a couple of sandwiches, some cookies, and a yogurt, and a banana. It wasn't long before Emily got to the real intention behind her visit. Grant, I was wondering, do you ever expect one thing from me and say another? I shrugged. Because I do have certain expectations of you that I don't have of any other person. And I try to convince myself that you put me first. Sometimes I tell you to do things and yet I wish and hope that you'll do otherwise. I saw about, I thought about this. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I should have been a better listener all along. I, I know this now, Emily nodded. The day we first met on the bus to the Toronto Book Fair, you seemed to hang onto, every, onto my every word. We talked some, and then you let me read a few pages of the book, and we were going to peddle. You humored me about some of my poems. What a wonderful day we had there together. Yeah, I had never met a woman who had read so many books. And then when we began dating, you would pick me up, and we'd go somewhere and talk about books and ideas, and we'd get some food and go for walks. Then you'd drop me off at home and nervously give me a kiss goodbye at the doorstep. Never in my life did I think that I'd find myself a gentleman. 
I was something, but I'm not sure I was a gentleman. Don't kid yourself. I couldn't believe that there could be a man so caring, so capable of listening, so content with the affections I was prepared to give. You cared about animals more than any person I've known, and you treated every person you met with great respect, right down to the children playing on the streets. So, I said, taking a swig of pop. For a time, I didn't know how I could be so happy in a relationship, she murmured, and at the same time I was living in a state of dread. I knew it would have to end, and I did everything to postpone it. I guess I sensed this. Since it was only a matter of time before I screwed things up, how could I expect such a relationship? You were deserving of something more. While I may not be that little girl who used to lock herself in the bathroom and find ways to bleed, I still have my problems. I'm selfish, though, and I've never been able to fully cut you loose. I've infected you, changed you for the worse. You're no longer the same person who used to show up at my doorstep and then kiss me goodnight. I'm sorry, I... Emily, our relationship is complex. There's a lot of gray. I never wanted to give you the impression that it was all or nothing. I didn't want to tack that type of guilt on you, nor did I want the responsibility. Emily nodded. And now, because we've tampered with the core of our friendship, I don't see how things can change, I concluded. Look it, I came here to apologize, and I've done that, Emily said sharply. What do you want of me, I demanded. I've respected your wishes. I've shared my home with you. I care for you as if you were my wife. I even let you drive the car all the time while I wear holes in my shoes. So what do you want of me? I was being uncharacteristically vocal, and this clearly was unsettling her. After a pause to reclaim her composure, she said very plainly, I want to get away. I want to go anywhere but here. I'm just so tired. I just... Wanted to end. Us, you mean? I asked, feeling a bit queasy. Don't pretend you don't know what I'm talking about, Emily warned, her sad, angry eyes fixed on mine. End of chapter two. Continuation of A Dog's Religion, Joel A. Robitaille, page 11, the bottom. And I shall continue. No sooner did the words leave my lips when I felt the sting of a swift kick to the shin. I looked up to find a pair of no-nonsense hazel eyes burning in a hole into me. Not above bribery, I passed her another five bucks. After we wrapped things up at the pub, I walked Megan home. As usual, we never said much when we were alone together. But she would always take my arm as we walked along. And I believe it or not, this was one of the things that kept my interest in her. I appreciated it as a gesture of possession. Having dropped off, dropped her off, I should say, I found my way to work. The new volunteer was waiting for me, his bicycle leaning against the building. He was a young kid freshly out of high school and considering being a veterinarian. He had a youthful face with bright, dark eyes that were both pious and mischievous, and curly hair that the young ladies probably adored. Sorry I'm late, I said. I'm Grant. Brent, he replied, with the lifeless voice of his generation extending his hand to me. 
but he did have the respectful confidence that I liked in a youth. I like your mop, Brent. You'll do fine here. Sure, I know it, he said, not quite genuine. I could tell he considered me old. All right, kid, my routine is pretty much the same every day. We punch in, say hi to the dogs, put on some coffee, and then feed Otis. Otis? I'll show you him, but first you need to punch in. We're tracking your hours here, even though they're voluntary. You never know. Your experience here may help you get into a program. At the very least, it should help you make a decision as far as a career path involved animals goes. Cool. After I showed him how to punch in, I led him to where we kept the dogs, and then I introduced him to Otis. Is that an iguana, he asked? Yeah. He was brought in on one torrential night by a couple at the end of the rope. What? he asked, looking confused. Forget it, I said. The one aquarium has a python named Hector in it, and the other one, the smaller one, has two annals. Pinocchi and Mussolini. Can I feed them, he asked. Sure, and I passed him a container of mealworms. Brent seemed pretty amused by the sight of the lizards gobbling down their dinner. Where did they come from, he asked, glancing away from the aquariums. People just brought them in, and I didn't have the heart to turn them away. Are you ready to make coffee? Brent shrugged and then casually followed me to the break area. Once the coffee was brewing, I showed him my mailbox where the day supervisor, Kelly, had left a note for me. A new dog had been brought in that day, and I was curious to have a look at him. After we each had poured a cup of coffee, I led Brent into the back room beyond the kennel area, where we kept a pen for new residents. Dogs were whining and barking incessantly as we walked past. I could detect the words and tone of each individual animal echoing and reverberating in the hollowness of the bay. Many of these dogs had given their hearts over to me, and it was hard to walk by without throwing a milk bone their way or giving them encouraging words. Once we arrived, I got out my trusty pole and noose and opened up the small pen to have a look at it. I read the chart. Silver. Hey, Silver, I said, looking in. Immediately, I knew there was no need to restrain this animal. In fact, I guessed this new resident wouldn't last a day without being adopted. Silver had all his shots. He was house-trained, friendly, and simply a beautiful dog. What did you say his name is? asked Brent. Crouching to pet him. Silver, I repeated. Hi, Silver. You're a good boy, aren't you? I could see that Brent had an instant connection with animals. This job was going to be a system shock for him. Why would anybody not want this dog, he asked. The note says that his master brought him in because he decided to move the family to the city, I said, scanning the intake notes. Didn't think the dog would have access to the outdoors anymore. It's unfair, Brent declared for the first time, admitting some feelings to his voice. I mean, wasn't he a part of the family? He was probably an integral part of one as long as it was convenient. He looked down into Silver's sad brown eyes, patted him on the head, and then flipped him a milk bone. You're going to be fine, I reassured the young dog, then showed Brent how to use the scale and record various data. When we're done with him, Silver sniffed around for a bit and finally curled up at our feet. After instructing Brent on how to fill in the paperwork, I patted my leg 
to communicate to Silver that I wanted him to follow us. Then we brought him out to the main bay and put him in a larger receptacle. I had Brent put in some fresh bedding and provide him with clean water. We both felt better when we had him locked up for the night with a familiar bone that his master had left him. Once we had finished up with Silver, I checked the time. In about 15 minutes, we'd let the dogs go outside before locking them up for the night. In the meantime, we went back to the office and hung out for a while. I slipped a Metallica CD into the stereo, and we leaned back into our chairs, munching potato chips. It's hard to accept that a dog can be abandoned so easily, said Brent. Yeah, I know, I nodded. On a nightly basis, my job requires me to overlook my personal resistance so that I can fulfill the duties expected of me. Then why do you do it? Because if I'm not doing it, who is? By taking on the responsibility myself, I know these dogs are cared for, but it's a reward that comes with plenty of sacrifice. If you stick around long enough, you'll know what I mean. I love animals, Brent began. But the dogs here, they all have a desperate desire for tension, attention in their eyes. We can't possibly give them all the attention they deserve. Don't worry about Silver, I reassured him. I wouldn't be si- surprised if he was adopted tomorrow. What about the others? Brent demanded. Follow me, I said, and I took him to see Porcupine, an older dog, gruff but loving, and not very attractive to visitors. See this fellow, Brent? Now this is a different situation. This dog has been in the shelter for about as much time as we can allow, and he has never disappointed. Once in a while, I even take this old veteran into my office while I work away, just to let him know his companionship is valued. Brent was bent down, petting Porcupine, who soaked up the attention, panting away with a look that could have been a smile. The reality is that next week I'll arrive at the shelter punch in, feed Otis, put on a pot of coffee, and then spend a few minutes with Porcupine before saying goodbye to him forever. That's the nature of my job, I tell you. Porcupine has five more years left in him, at least. Yet his experience and survival has earned him an early departure from this world. But there has to be something we can do, Brent challenged. You could adopt him if you wanted. I can't, he admitted sadly. Then you can see how difficult it is. After our break... We got back to work. I showed Brent how the cages were networked so that he would release the dogs into outside pens to enjoy the fresh air and perform their natural functions. It didn't take long for any of the dogs to learn the system, whereby a small trap door was opened behind them and they'd walk directly into the outdoor confines. It took up to 30 to 45 minutes to take care of them all. While they were outside, we refilled their water dishes and did a quick clean-up of their pens. Where did you learn how to mop, I asked. What? Brent looked confused. No, you first used a wet mop and slosh it everywhere, then squeeze it dry. Then you can do a dry mop over it. That way you don't have to put so much muscle into it. Okay. Of course, Brent still kept doing it his own way. I made a mental note of this. When he got to the last cage, the first of the dogs started to come back in. We gave them all a bit of individual attention. So where are the cats, Brent asked. They're in a room on the other side of the office, I explained. But I don't much have to do with them. The day workers pretty much take care of them. My girlfriend said if there was a cute little kitten around that I could bring out one of her, to bring one home to her. How long have you been with her? 
A year, Brent replied with almost a look of pride in his eyes. But I'm a man of variety. You know what I mean. Sure, I smirked. You're admitting you're whipped. I'm not whipped. The girls I date are well aware of who wears the pants. And that's why you're already pestering me about a kitten? Why don't you show me that you're a man enough for the job before you call on any favors? Sure, dude, he said dismissively right before I hit him square in the head with a roll of paper towels. Make sure you clean the sink areas, too. You'll find cleaners in the cupboards below. Yes, sir, he mumbled on his way by me. Once all the dogs were all locked in for the night, I took Brent over to his shelf and showed him the toys I had stashed there. I then introduced him to my family away from home. This is Crystal, I said, showing him a fast, medium-sized dog that resembled a beagle with beautiful blue eyes. She was a mixture of greys and browns and white and black with a big, bushy tail. She's my baby girl, you know. She's stunning, Brent exclaimed. Why is she still here? See how her left ear is torn? That, and the fact that she's pretty skittish with strangers. She'll howl at you if you try to touch her. In fact, some days Crystal was crazy in love with me, while on others she acted as though she resented my company and was fearful. And this is my pal, Pete, I said, showing him a dog with no discernible ties to any breed, just plain brown with matted fur and exuberant chocolate eyes. Pete may have been the most adoptable animal in the pound, and yet people shied away from him because he was so ugly by conventional standards. I like this guy, said Brent. He has some character to him. Go ahead, you can say it. He's ugly, but I think he's a good ugly, and he's as faithful as a friend as I've known. Then I showed him the brute. This is Tory. To say it plainly, Tory didn't like me. He was a bulldogish looking with a pug face and obstructed breathing. I'm not sure what breeds followed or flowed in his veins, but his lack of faith in humanity made him a hard dog to find a family for. It had taken weeks for me to gain a working trust with him, but it was clear that he loved the companionship of other dogs. I watched Brent extend his hand and then pull it back quickly. Watch yourself with him. He'll nip, I warned. You're not kidding. And finally, this is Lady. Hi, Lady, said Brent on his knees, trying to coax the shy dog away. Lady was an interesting case. I've never seen a dog so taken by me. She was a big dog, perhaps, with some collie in her, lots of bronze fur mixed with white. She had a prissy-looking face with the ears set back and a long-pointed snout. She seemed to demand my approval before she'd make any decisions, and was fanatical about my attention and loyalty. Obsequious and quite affectionate when it came to me, she was suspicious of everyone else. If you stand out of the way, she'll join the others, Brent moved to the side, and Lady slunk into the bay, keeping a watchful eye on him. While the dogs were out snooping around, I pulled out a rawhide ring selected from my stash. They all started to whine and gather around me, their eyes glistening with expectation. I threw it across the room, and they bounded after it with the signature enthusiasm of their species. The dogs, observing from their pens, were howling and carrying on and scratching against the wire caging as the spectacle played out before them. To ease Brent's concerns about blatant favoritism, as he put it, I assured him that all 
had the chance to play in the open, on top of receiving regular exercise during the day. It was when the dogs were wrestling with each other and trying to steal for themselves a satisfactory chew, obviously having a great time, that I thought I heard a thump. I looked up to see the man I referred to as the inspector watching us through the glass window on the door window into the bay. I quickly ushered the dogs into their pens and greeted my superior. He was an older man, tall and wiry, gray hair, gray eyes, behind gray-rimmed spectacles, gray skin, in suit and tie, and I could tell he was unnerved by the free-for-all of fun he had just witnessed. Having a good night, I see, he said sarcastically, motioning for us to follow him to the office. I offered him a coffee after we sat down, but he declined. He frowned at me after looking over the reptiles, his eyes resting on the motionless Otis. I thought you were going to find homes for these. I'm working on it, I replied. They're not hurting anybody, and the health board has no problem with them. Get rid of them soon, he demanded. Yes, sir. This is the volunteer? Yes, this is Brent. He seems to be doing quite well. Brent looked very uncomfortable, and I felt bad. How do you do, said Brent, extending his hand. The inspector ignored it and asked him, do you think I should get cameras in the bay so that I can keep an eye on you guys? Maybe you should, Brent replied, obviously uncomfortable, but too young to know the silence would have been the most appropriate answer. At this point, I was confident the old man had come in looking for someone to bully. Look, sir, I interjected, I put in at least ten hours of my own time every week. I take my job very seriously. This may be so. But that doesn't give you free reign to break policy. These are not your pets, and I will not tolerate you excusing yourself from the rules. You can never justify having dogs wandering about the bay. You hear me? It won't happen again, I assured him. Grant, you're walking on thin ice. It's the straight and narrow here, no exception. I'll be leaving now. It was like being in grade school again, surrendering my sense of autonomy before the rigid rules of the principal. I wondered whether the inspector really cared about animals. Maybe this was just some philanthropic activity providing him with tax relief. I needed this job, and not even a living embodiment of rigid steel was going to remove me from my vocation, especially after I had worked so hard to find my place. Once we were sure the old man had departed, Brent and I shared a good laugh over his ridiculous figure before the boy left for the night himself. I'm sure he pedaled away on his bike with some unique experience of digest. I then organized my desk, typed up the notes, and got out the leather notebook Emily had given me for Christmas. Often I'd used the couple of hours of downtime I had every night to journal about my day as well as jot down ideas for a book I was writing about a man trying to salvage his life after being responsible for a deadly car accident. Then I would do a bit more cleaning and fiddle around with some maintenance project until Kelly arrived at seven. That morning I joined Kelly outside and talked with her while the sun crept above the horizon. She smoked and listened to me complain about spontaneous supervision during the night. Kelly was a hefty girl, kind, loving, and cheerful, but I got the sense she didn't really like me until I arrived at the shelter. She pretty much ran the show. Still, there's not a double doubt in my mind that when it came to loving animals, she was my equal. 
She said she sympathized with my ordeal and promised to ease the inspector's concerns about the next time she had a chance. She asked me whether I was able to record her notes on the cats, which I promised to do, and she agreed to work with Silver throughout the day. My shift over, I walked home, feeling drained, and hoping I wouldn't have to discuss my evening with Emily before typing my notes, writing a bit more, and finally going to bed. Earth-loving Pamela Written by Pamela Cat. An earth-friendly economy. A work in progress. Written by Pamela Cat. I have an obsession. I think about it every day, almost, everywhere I go. This obsession has been with me for years and will likely follow me for the rest of my life, as it is a part of the core of who I am. In some ways, it's like my very best friend. What is this obsession? What could possibly occupy my thoughts day in and day out? It's a twofold yet unified obsession which compels me to write. The health of the planet and the well-being of humankind is at the core of everything I do in life. The fact that there is so much sickness, both ecologically and socially, is of grave concern for me and motivates me to seek a solution to what ails us as human beings. In order to highlight the environmental issues, I would like to refer to a recent Google, Google, Google search, which I asked, what kind of environmental problems do we face? The following is the list Google provides. Number one, extensive killing of animals and destroying of plants. Number two, pollution of the air, water, soil, and other by chemicals. Number three, usage and abandon of radioactive materials. Number four, increase of UV rays due to depletion of the ozone layer. Number five, rapid global warming. Number six, flood, drought, increased numbers of typhoons rising sea levels due to global warming. Number seven, subsistence, sinking land. Number eight, acid rain. Number nine, desertification, loss of forests. Number ten, salinization. Number eleven, insufficient energy, water, food, and other resources. Number twelve, waste products. Number thirteen, Health danger due to electromagnetic waves. Number 14. Other pollutions. Noise, vibration, smell, radio, wave damage, light pollution. While Google has so kindly highlighted the ecological problems we face, the aim of this writing is not to go into great depth analyzing these problems. This has been done already in countless articles, books, and other presentations. My goal is to focus on describing a realistic solution to the problem we face. By the end of this presentation, a solution that can remedy all of these problems will become clear. Suffice it to say that I and many others are terrified for the future of our children and the rest of humanity 
we don't find a way to reduce our damaging footprint on the planet's ecosystem. This concern crosses over into all sectors of humanity. Whether one is rich or poor or middle class, we all breathe air to survive. We all need clean water and food growing from the earth. We all need safety and security. Without a healthy earth, life for humans becomes grim to say the least. The biggest problem we face is that the economy which helps us survive is simultaneously compromising our survival. There are many facets to this truth. To begin with, the current reality of working life is that the masses of people around the world drive hours in order to work every day. That's a constant consumption of gas that demands that we take more and more oil from the earth on a regular basis. Sure, that's a money-making enterprise. But at what cost? If we look at the manufacturing industries around the world that rely on mining of non-renewable resources, resources for their product as well as the construction of factories and machinery, what is the environmental cost? If we also take into account the combined resources used for shipping, both the resources used for the ships and vehicles and the resources to fuel them, what is the collective impact on the ecosystem? We can also consider the environmental costs of the industry of war. How many resources have been used for the manufacture of weapons, planes, ships, tanks and the fuel to run the war machine? How many pristine areas of land and healthy ecosystems have been damaged to keep this sector of work afloat? I know that people have made great livings through the war machine. However, we truly need to examine the costs for the sake of the future of this planet. Transportation, manufacturing, and the war machine need to be addressed in order to remedy the ills that face our beloved planet, which is the greatest gift to us. It sustains our biological life. It's a tragic irony that the celebrated growth of our GDP correlates directly with damage done to the ecosystem, which is the basis of our survival as a biological species. Everything that sustains our biological existence is dependent on the Earth. Everything. Our bodies are literally made from molecules that come from food, air, and water. that come from the Earth. Without a healthy planet, humans stand to suffer greatly. Any species that outgrows their habitat invites death upon itself. Scientists and lay people around the globe are convinced that this is our future if we don't change our ways. Popular media would suggest that people offer solutions such as building shelters underground or in space while humans self-destruct and or wipe out populations with violence and or disease. I will not put my, sort, my support behind these so-called solutions. The thought of a select few humans living years in underground bunkers while chaos on earth erupts does not agree with me on any level. I find it highly disturbing that people point to various prophecies, including those within the Bible, to reinforce the idea that it's God's will that the planet be destroyed. The only thing needing destruction is our habits of survival that require the plundering of the earth. I hope we, with all my heart that common sense and care for the earth will inspire people who believe in these prophecies to reconsider their interpretation of them. The risks of plans like the aforementioned are just too great to be entertained as a feasible possibility. Entertainment is where plans like that belong. 
as there have been countless movies and television shows that paint pictures of what that path leads us, or where that path leads us. Those plans do not forecast a happy, healthy future. Just as they say, the pen is mightier than the sword, so too can we say the truth is mightier than the bond. We need to care for the life on this planet and begin to do it as soon as possible. The alarm bell is ringing as it has been for years. People are hearing the call. What can we do? Anytime there is a natural disaster in nations with access to money, the repairs are looking after regard are, the repairs are looked after regardless of the cost. If there is a state of emergency due to flooding, tornadoes, hurricanes, volcanoes, tsunamis, or earthquakes, the military, the police, emergency services, medical services, construction industries, and food services all come together to make sure humans are looked after and our communities and homes are rebuilt. If that is the case, when natural disaster strikes and we create the resources to deal with it and make things right, then doesn't it make logical sense to apply the same level of human ingenuity, work, ethic, care, compassion, and determination to avoid an irreversible planetary calamity? Yes, indeed, it does make sense. And I've devoted my life to developing a plan that can work. Stage 2, Earth-Loving Pamela by Pamela June Cat. Our planetary home is being destroyed. It is time to put aside our differences and work towards a rational solution that is good for the Earth and good for humankind. We need an economy that supports both human and planetary wellness. Can you be open to change for the sake of our children and our children's children? I thank you for listening thus far. I seek to serve the wellness of potentially everyone on the earth through the presentation of the following plan. That includes both those who hold monetary and political power and those who live and work a so-called normal life, free of the trappings of power. I have sought to include the health and well-being of everyone in the working of this plan and seek to accomplish the goal of planetary health by keeping all social groups and individuals in mind and in heart. In mind, violent political conflict, i.e. war, is to be avoided at all costs, and it doesn't serve the greater good of planetary and human health. I seek to persuade people to consider this plan by using diplomacy embodied in care and compassion for the well-being of all. Simultaneously in this moment, I speak to everyone alive, including workers, those looking for work, employers, heads of corporations, local, national, and world leaders, heads of state, and ultimately the body of people known as the United Nations. I have spent years on the ground studying the current economic system from the perspective of one who sees its flaws as well as its benefits. I spent even more time imagining how things could be better. Considering the emergency we all face, I don't think it's impossible to convince world leaders and wealthy business people to endorse a better way. After all, their biological needs are the same as any human. They have children, families, and communities who need clean air, water, and soil to survive. 
They would benefit from this plan. To give their blessings to a plan that could help humanity grow into harmony with the earth would go a long way to ease the conflict, stress and anxiety caused by the current mode of operation. Yes, I seek the blessing of world leaders for the sake of our future on this planet. How could we turn the emergency into a peaceful, healthy prosperity of life and harmony with earth? With much thought, prayer, inspiration and meditation, I have come up with a platform which I believe can serve humanity in these challenging times. The remainder of this presentation will be divided into those points. There are, they are all steps towards creating a life of harmony with the planet and each other. What kind of price tag can we put on a resource that sustains our lives? What value can we give to the vast, beautiful, fragile and vibrant force that is life on this planet? I would like to propose to you that the health of the planet Earth is the most valuable resource in the existence, in existence and ought to have an unlimited source of funds available for its healthy maintenance. I would like to consider the possibility of establishing an unlimited, debt-free, tax-free source of funds to be used for planetary health and human wellness. It ought to be unlimited because Earth's health is priceless and it needs to be debt-free and tax-free because making things right is challenging enough without having more debt and taxes hanging over everybody's heads. There's so much work to be done and having unlimited fiscal resources to transition into a body of people who look after our ecosystem, ecosystem is the most pragmatic solution to our problems. This money can be likened to the tool that gets the job done. If the job is to ensure the health of the planet and the well-being of the people, that job is worth unlimited financial resources without the punishment of debt or taxes. It is a well-known fact that the Federal Reserve has been able to create money for profit. Since that has been possible, then why wouldn't it be possible to create a new monetary system whose goal is human and planetary wellness? If the gold standard was possible when in invented, then why couldn't we invent the planetary health standard of monetary creation? I believe with all my heart, soul, mind and strength that this is our best course of action, all things considering, and I shall explain to you why. Before I do, I need to address the body of people who may seek to stand in the way of an earth-friendly currency and plan of action. The only humans I can see standing in the way of such a currency are those who don't want to let go of monetary, social and or political power they hold within the current system and or those who think the current system is the best way for a working society to survive. They may be heads of corporations and political leaders who sit at the top of the proverbial pyramid of power. Because of the work they have done and the vision of their lives, people have had jobs and have been able to support the family. For doing such, they ought to be recognized and thanked for helping people survive thus far. While some have, I have no desire to humanize people who have provided work for millions at the cost of health of the earth. I believe many truly have thought that they were doing good for humanity. I do not seek to make enemies, but allies and friends for all in this together. Chapter 2 A Dog's Religion by Joel A. Robitaille
Much of my decision-making in life has to do with my gut feelings. I always supposed the woman I married would just feel right, and that our claim to each other would be undeniable. At 30 years old, and having spent the past two years so close to the woman I felt destined for, I began to think that maybe, just maybe, it was time to consider making concessions and compromises. When I'm in a relationship that has become complex, I exist in a state of relationship anxiety, and my conscience reveals the tensions involved in proceeding further. You know what it's like? You feel it might not be healthy to go on, and yet the pain of severance is still being weighed against the potential benefits of terminating the relationship. Then, once you do break it off, the mind will often rewrite the relationship so that you question your decision time and time again, even though you consciously know you were right to seek love elsewhere. So what if the person you love shows indisputable signs of returning your affection, but the proof is yet to demonstrate itself in the pudding? In reality, you're committed to a possibility, and a possibility left open remains merely that possibility. So, your love life ends up mirroring that of an ascetic monk in the practice of desert spirituality, with only your religion to attend to. The danger is that if you don't actively seek some type of transformation, your days could become lost in the barren sands of relationship resentment. If my feelings for Emily had been returned, I would have committed myself to her in a heartbeat. I loved her down to the fine details, and I often internalized her suffering when I considered her fear of closeness and how shallow her expectations of life had become. I guess that's why I chose to date Megan, who I very well knew was a figurative spitting in Emily's face. The funny thing is, there was a part of myself that could see me ending up with Megan. I'd be lying if I didn't admit that she had become a sliver of hope for an alternative future. But no matter how I arranged it all on the table, I never could have been comfortable with Megan caring for me the way Emily did. Emily was the only person I could truly be myself around. And maybe that's why I had no problem using Megan to break her resolve. A specific example is when Megan slept over one weekend. I can admit that I wanted to get a reaction out of Emily. Part of me desired the type of satisfaction I would get if she showed any jealousy at all, while another part of me just wanted to test the waters. So I informed Emily of my intentions, and then I made arrangements for her to stay at Tamar's place. Megan came over, and we watched a movie and had some dinner. Then we spent the rest of the night upstairs. When Emily arrived the next day, I was out taking the dogs for a walk. It was quite a scene when I returned. From what I gathered, Emily began making the bed, and supposedly the fragrance of foreign perfume on the seats, sheets really set her off. By the time I came home, she was storming around the house in the middle of some angry cleaning. After some choice words on her part, I decided there wasn't any sense in talking about it until she calmed down. I thought this would probably be a good time to visit Tamar while he left, while he was at work, so I carefully maneuvered my way around her, making sure to keep out of striking distance, and made my way to the car. 
Something about this unusual display of emotion, though, made me reconsider my decision to leave. I walked back to the house and peered through the front window to see Emily sitting on the couch with her face in her hands. I found it unfair. She is one who demanded that I date another, and yet when I respected her wishes, she saved her suffering and experienced it in isolation. Worse yet, she never came clean about the harm I was visiting upon her, instead choosing to juxtapose words like accept and reject in a way that left me wondering whether she was describing a very real ambivalence or using calculated language to keep me insecure and at a distance. And yet I couldn't resent her for it. She had this appreciation for the natural world that she needed me to share, and just as much I think I needed to learn how to share it. That's why, regardless of the season, she'd have met me. She'd have take. She'd have me take her on long drives down the country roads to admire farmhouses set against ever-changing landscapes and vast exposures of sky. Or in the summer, she'd take me on hikes along trails in the wilderness to further expand my knowledge of exotic wildflowers: vervain, silverweed, saxifrage, and cordialis. And even in the evenings, she'd like us to take walks under the stars together because it gave her the words, a deep feeling of pathos. She, so, how could I resent her? She taught me to sentimentalize the moments we captured together on our way to an authentic platform for our friendship. And here I was, a spectator to her crying, something I had never witnessed in all time with her. I didn't know how to respond. While considering an appropriate course of action, I felt this deep sympathy for her simmering near the top of my emotion, and yet confusion, anger, and resentment were bubbling up from the base. When these feelings were reduced and caramelized, the result was a serving of guilt that left my stomach churning. At this point, I was very tempted to go on as though I had never witnessed this uncomfortable portrait of Emily's vulnerability. I'm sure this would have been her preference as well, but then again, walking away would have meant living with the knowledge that I had surrendered my greater opportunity thus far in our relationship to acquaint myself with the genuine article. So looking through the window at my hurting companion, I was left with little choice but to confront her. I took a deep breath and walked back through the front door. Emily didn't even bother trying to hide the fact that she had been crying. She stared up at me and said with great composure, Do you think you can love her? I thought I could. I don't believe you, Grant. There's something different about her, I explained. Emily laughed cynically. What's so funny? You can try to deceive yourself, but not me. You know she's a temporary fix. That's probably true, I admitted. Then you're a jerk, Emily said plainly. That might even be an understatement. Emily struggled for words before practically spitting out, I find your utter disregard for other feelings to be repugnant. But I respect her, I insisted. Well, what about me? Of course I do. Emily had a look in her eyes that conveyed a desire to strike, but she calmed herself down. Then her disposition changed and I saw a glimpse of her vulnerability. Grant, do you feel closer to her than to me? Her voice was sad and nervous. I chose to be evasive. Megan will allow herself to be intimate with me. Emily paused for a second and then said in a regretful tone, I wish I could make you understand, but it's hard to explain without sounding stupid. 
Don't bother, I answered. At this point, I'm so sick of it that I don't care anymore. Emily then became very serious, almost uncomfortably serious, considering we'd never gone this deep with each other before. I'm not good with timing, but I'm going to throw caution to the wind and for once try to express my feelings as clearly as possible. You've never needed any my permission, I reminded her. Emily took a moment to form her thoughts, then said, I want you to know that there's never been a time I didn't want us to be together. I was taken completely by surprise and looked at her for some time in silence, trying to find the right words to say, Well, Grant, Emily coaxed, trying to get a response. Are you serious? I finally managed. Of course I meant it, she said convincingly, looking at me as though I was crazy. I've always imagined us together. I, I believe you, I reassured her, trying to slow everything down. It's just that, that for all this time I felt the exact same way. Emily sighed, her eyes became moist, but they also looked angry. This reaction was outside of my expectation. I waited an explanation, but received none. What's wrong? I finally asked, breaking the silence. Oh, I don't know, Emily said sarcastically. Maybe it just raises questions. Like what? Emily shrugged. I don't know, maybe it makes me ask myself why it is that I'm here. It makes me ask why it is that I trust you. What did I say? I demanded. Emily ignored me. It makes me ask why it is you've never told me you love me. I was speechless. Perhaps dumbfounded would be a better word. You sure have a hard time explaining yourself today, Emily sneered. I don't know, Emily. I don't know why I've never said it. Sure you do, she insisted. Just tell me the truth. I'll understand. I'm not sure, I said, fumbling with my words. When I felt like saying it, it seemed like I was going out on a limb. On a limb? I don't know how else to explain it, I said, my mind reeling. Just try, she urged. Or are you afraid to be honest with me? Then, in the midst of the pressure and confusion, the truth seemed to tumble out of me. Maybe I was just afraid you wouldn't say it back. She considered this for a second and then nodded in understanding. I should have had more faith, I backpedaled, trying to comfort her. It might have simplified everything between us. Emily started to playing with her hands, her gaze downcast. I don't blame you, then she looked up into my eyes. But do you know how often I prayed to hear those words? It would have made all the difference. I wanted to say them. It's my issue, not yours, Emily said reassuringly. I'm not blaming you. But why me? Why am I so scared all the time? Why can't I allow myself the same dreams as other women? I put my arms around her then, but then she only pushed me back. Grant, stop. Stop right now. You're not listening to me. I said nothing. There seemed very little I could say to bring her comfort. If only she could move far away, she whispered. If only there was a way to start all over. Continuation of A Dog's Religion by Joel Robitaille, Chapter 2, Page 30. If only we could move far away, she whispered. If only there was a way to start over again. A single tear formed in her eye, overflowed, and then slowly navigated the structure of her cheekbone. 
leaving a glossy streak along her face before bending on her chin and falling to the floor with an isolated patter. I felt it splash within me, over me, and under me, as if I were being baptized for the first time. At that point, I began waking up to the allegory behind the dream, the subtext, the underlying truth implicit to the writing of our relationship. All of a sudden, I felt responsible for her hopelessness and wished that I could go back a year or two in time. Then I wouldn't have to live with the knowledge that we could have avoided this whole mess if I had voiced the feelings in my heart from the beginning. As it was, I found that the moment between us that I had desired for all those months proved difficult to swallow. It was shocking. Given my feelings for Emily, it's easy to think that I would have declared my intentions to her on the spot. Believe me, I wanted to tell her that she meant everything to me. I wanted to reassure her that the sharing of her feelings with me was the right thing to do. But I felt awkward and uncomfortable from the sudden injection of seriousness between us. There was a great deal of pressure in the recognition that we had encountered one of those shared moments in a relationship that tend to be called defining. Our relationship was at a crossroads no matter how we cut it. And there was a sense of no turning back. With this in mind and being possessed of little skills as a counselor or a comforter, no better course of action came to mind than to kiss her. Yes, I leaned right over, took her into my arms, and then kissed her with an insistence that left little room for negotiation. It took her a second to comprehend this decision before she added motion to the embrace, her eyes wide with surprise, then slowly closing and yielding to acceptance. Although this gesture removed from me the discomfort of conversation, I spent the duration of the kiss wondering how my decision was going to change things between us. I didn't wonder long. And Emily suddenly pushed me away. What are you doing? I thought this was what you wanted, I explained, totally confused. No, Grant. Haven't you been listening to me? What is it, then? It's time you stop dangling my heart over the abyss, she replied angrily. What does that mean? I asked, even more confused. My lack of insight frustrated Emily beyond her, beyond her means of restraint. Damn it, she cried. Don't you get it? I'm not one of the, of your dogs. Before I could respond, she stormed out of the room and slammed the door behind her, shaking the whole house with the impact, then scorching her tires as she tore down the street in a blur of color. Having watched her disappear, I sat down and tried to calm myself by repeatedly playing the discussion in my head. I just couldn't seem to get a handle on it, though. On the one hand, I wanted Emily to come to me of her own volition because I imagined that our togetherness was imminent, as if written in the stars. And yet, when she'd made that this first step, I felt a resistance within me. The quiet house felt like judgment, and no amount of mental rearranging could change what had occurred. Seeing that I couldn't solve this on my own, I gave up and decided to visit Dan Tamer. 
Tamer ran a pizza joint in town, the only place he was easily accessible to all his friends. Fortunately for me, he savored my misadventures like a cold beer after a hard day of work. The truth is, it made him feel better to describe my misery and then hear him chuckle as though my problems were no more of a crisis than an itch. He could provide me with a laugh of context that I desperately needed, giving me the perspective to make crystal clear decisions apart from personal feelings. When I walked into the restaurant, Brent, of all people, was sitting at one of the tables with his pals, apparently getting some food before work. The table in front of him looked like it had hosted feasting vultures. I told him to join me so that I could introduce him to the chef. When we walked into the kitchen, I was greeted in familiar fashion. Old man, said Tamara, a bit grain on his face. This is Brent, I said. He's a new volunteer at the shelter. You don't look like a Brent, Tamara observed, looking the boy over. We need to give you a real name. Brent's just fine, said the kid. No, no, trust me, we can help you out, Tamar urged. Then turned to me. He looks like a chicken, doesn't he? With that hair, he looks like a chicken, sort of. Brent did not look impressed. Bet the ladies love you, don't they, Tamar asked Brent, giving him a wink. I need my friends to peel them off me, Brent replied, flashing his arrogance. That's good, said Tamar. We're going to raise you right. No, you're not, I said. You want a job, kid? Tamar asked, not afraid of putting a new acquaintance on the spot. A job? Tamar nodded. Sure, come work for me. It's easy to see that I can instill some values in you. You have all the makings of a warrior. Wouldn't you say, old man? He turned to me, grinning. No, he doesn't, I objected. Tell him to go to hell, Brent. You know how I live vicariously through my warriors, Grant? Keeps me young. He swiveled back to Brent. My pizza warriors go out into the world and do me proud. I'll show you how to live, right? I've had an abundance of women in my life, and with my guidance, I promise that your lonely nights will be over. Enough, Dan, I said, trying to put my foot down. Seriously, come see me, Brent, said Tamar, ignoring me. I need a new lad for prep. I need to talk to you, I interjected. Tamar nodded. What is it? I... Wait, Grant, Tamar interrupted, turning his attention to Brent. Don't you know when you've been dismissed, you sloppy little fool? What the poor kid asked almost looked frightened. If I hadn't known Tamar so well, I might have felt sorry for Brent. Listen, chicken, I'll tell you an answer for me. Get the hell out of my kitchen. I was just leaving, Brent replied cockily, quickly regaining his composure. He even took the time to pour himself some pop from the fountain before giving us a sly grin and strolling out of the kitchen. I'll beat that spirit out of him, Tamar mumbled but looking happy at the prospect of a new addition to his staff. So what's that all about? It's about Emily. Go on, Tamar encouraged. She cracked today, I confessed. What do you mean? She tried to guilt me into saying I love her. Tamar started to laugh. What can I tell you? Women are crazy. I keep telling you this, and yet you ignore the evidence. So what did you do? Throw it back in her face? Not exactly. After what she's put you through, didn't you tell her to go to hell? No. Oh, you're a pathetic man, you spineless fool. Don't tell me you bought into the insanity. I actually felt really guilty, Dan. You know how I am when it comes to Emily. 
I don't want to hear it, Tamara said in disgust. You're so pathetic I can hardly look at you. You had a prime opportunity to take control and you squandered it. What do you mean, I asked, starting to laugh. I'm not that pathetic, am I? I mean, you listen to a word I've said all these years. Women need black and white. They need the firm hand, not the permissive admirer or the pushover. Well, what would you have done in my position? Don't make it about me, old man, said Tamar, shaking his head. If we look at the facts, it's easy to see that, that up until this point, you've been willing to sell out for the little you know what. And he made a triangle shape with his hands. Maybe, I said, considering the possibility, I'm just not sure what to do now. Of course you're not, Tamar said with understanding in his voice. You're at a crossroads, buddy. The only way to proceed is to know exactly what you want. It's difficult. If I settle for Megan, I know what I get, and she's predictable. Emily, on the other hand, might never be a sure thing. Still, she could become the joy of my life. It's equally possible that she'll be my absolute ruin, though. You know what I think, old man? What? I think you're shallow. Perhaps superficial would be a better word. How can you say that? Easy. If Emily wasn't so attractive, would you really even be giving this any consideration? It's not her beauty, I insisted. Oh, I beg to differ. I've known you for a long time. And you're superficial. I couldn't help but smile. I'm not going to argue with you, Tamer, but you haven't told me what you really think. Well, what do you want to do? He asked, glancing around the kitchen. I thought about this for a second. In all honesty, Emily hasn't convinced me that she's ready to be with me. She's only convinced me that she doesn't want to be with Megan. Doesn't want me to be with Megan. Tamer took a pizza out of the oven, sliced it up, and dished it off to one of his beautiful young waitresses to be transported to the dining room. Judging by the scowl on the girl's face, she didn't seem to appreciate me diverting her manager's attention. You know what I think, said Tamer, looking very serious. Save yourself. Disentangle yourself entirely from both of them. Maybe then you'll actually play more than two games of tennis with me a year. I just can't, I said. I'm too old to cut my losses. He shrugged. Well then, play it for all it's worth. Technically, you're dating Megan and Emily. It's just your roommate. You're right, I said, feeling relieved. If I don't do anything, things will work themselves out on their own. Tamer shook his head. What a surprise. So much turmoil over a little bit of this. And he made the triangle shape again. Continuation of Dog's Religion by Joel Robitaille, page 36. Brent was waiting for me when I got to work. I unlocked the door and we punched in together. I was beginning to enjoy having a protege. It was a rainy night. Not that this made a difference. The singular beauty of the shelter was the weather. It did not exist in the world within a world. Sunshine, rain, or snow, it never really mattered because you could never be aware of the outdoors once you entered the facility. It was like voluntarily condemning yourself to a harsh reality you would never consider otherwise. The rules were different, and you were very conscious of your spirit and the fragility of your 
physical existence as well as your beliefs. The shelter was something you could never learn to understand from a book, no matter how detailed the description. After Brent put the coffee on, he approached me while I was sitting at my desk. Was your friend Tamar serious today, he ventured. Unfortunately, yes, he's been looking for a peasant to beat on for a few months now. Do you think I should take him up on the offer? I thought about this for a second and then gave the kid some context. If you work for Tamar, I want you to understand that you're getting a lot more than just a manager. It's more like you're being adopted into his family. But being a member of Tamar's family is a unique experience. He'll always be there for you, and yet he'll steer you wrong for the sport of it. He'll respect you personally, but he'll seize the opportunity to laugh at your missteps. You also might think twice about bringing your girlfriend around him, because you'll find that his, he communicates with women on a level you could never comprehend. Really? Women come from the far and wide for his advice. They cry on his shoulder, they seek his approval. And yet it's amazing how much they respect and disrespect him at the same time. Tamer has a reputation, both good and bad. And it's hard for people to reconcile the sheer logic of his advice, which comes from a truly good nature, with the side of him that has earned him a dubious reputation. I want to work for this guy, Brent said with his conviction. I want to see how he lives his life, especially what's in his bag of tricks. Tamar has no magical bag of tricks. He just knows how to talk to women and make each one feel special. If he wasn't my friend and my girlfriend wasn't spending time with him, I know I would be concerned. Every man in town is aware of Dan Tamar and prays that his girlfriend never crosses Tamar's path. How can you guys be buddies then? You seem so different in philosophy. It's amazing you get along. I would do anything for him. I've learned more about myself because of him than from anyone else I've known. I used to work side by side with him at the restaurant, and it was an educational experience for both of us. And what's funny is that neither one of us had impacted each other's views in the least. Some would call that futility, but I think that it's through relating to each other that we find out what we truly believe. I know that I believe because of him, and he knows that he believes because of me. But keep my girlfriend from him, Brent asked, if you know what's good for you. When we started our, our clean-up, I gave Brent a heads-up that tonight was going to be difficult, the type of night that robs a person of something precious, namely the ignorance of something transpiring behind the fabric of societies, unavoidable and yet unconscionable according to human concepts of justice. Simply put, the hourglass on your porcupine's life was up. Brent, if he chose to stay, was going to gain insight into the canine reality of dwelling in a cash-tight world. There is a reason why people are much more upset when a dog gets killed in a movie than a movie star. We're desensitized to seeing a person die on the screen, but a dog in trouble screams to our soul for protection. The injustice is that a dog, the conceptual embodiment of innocence and loyalty, should never end up a casualty of human conflict. Their whole lives are like a suspended childhood. That's to say very few dogs get to depend on their own devices. Justice is in the shelter meant administering injustice. 
The dogs we housed were definitely victims of human affairs, yet the consequences for failing to find a home remained theirs and theirs alone. There was nothing more we could do. We only had so much space and we only had so much funding. My cell phone rang. It was Tamar. Hey Grant, I got it. I got a name for that kid. We're talking about something serious here, I muttered, glancing at Brent. It'll only take a second, Tamar insisted. Go ahead then. Geezer, he said. He began to laugh. Gizzard? No, geezer. Remember that chicken we incubated and raised back in high school with the ridiculous crown on its head? Okay, I nodded, starting to form a memory. Remember what happened when we went to eat it? Yeah, he had so much personality that we wouldn't do it. So we gave him his freedom and chose another instead. So what do you think? I think you nailed it, I replied, grinning. It suits him perfectly. Make sure Geezer comes to see me about the job. You got it, man. I put my phone away. Who was that, asked Brent. It was Tamer. He's coming up with a name for you in the event that you work for him, but I think I'll adopt it myself. What? Look, Geezer, we need to get a move on. I still plan on having you out on time tonight. Geezer, he objected. That's what two geniuses came up with. There's no sense in fighting it. Once Tamer decides these things, everybody pretty much follows his lead. Now let's get working. When we entered Porcupine's pen, he was curled up in the corner sleeping soundly. Big, broad torso with pointy tufts of fur, ears with satellite maneuverability, wet, intricately patterned nose, chestnut eyes, big paws with polished black nails, whiskers upon whiskers, little upside-down V above each eye for eyebrows, raspberry tongue, red collar, one of the few items he considered his, thick, prideful tail. I patted my dog for him to walk alongside of us, my leg for him to walk alongside of us. He seemed slow, cumbersome, as he followed us into the office and flopped down on the floor. And yet, undoubtedly, he was happy about the special attention. As I typed my notes, I drank some coffee while Brent stretched out on the floor beside him and stroked his soft ears. I thought about what Emily had said. The connection seemed obvious. She was accusing me of putting her in that same situation as the dogs, either form a relationship or be extinguished. The question became, how could she not see my selfless motivation for working at the shelter, or the home I provided her, for that matter? My life was not delicate, dedicated to observing dogs fail. The reality of my job outside of my personal control was that I could only provide dogs with hope for so long before I was forced to kill them. So, what did she mean when she chose the word abyss? When you break it down, can't the abyss be considered the dark emptiness that's the black drop for hope's silvery glimmer? Or does the abyss exist by virtue of hope's external presence? Grant, said Brent, disturbing my concentration. The boy was looking up at me from his sprawled position next to Porcupine. What is it? I just can't believe there's nothing we can do, he said innocently. In my throat I could feel the lump forming that I always get when the moment draws near. At this point, kid, you always ask yourself whether you did everything you could to help this dog. But either way, the outcome is what it is. But I love him. Give him this, I said, producing a chocolate bar I had in my pocket and flipped it to him. Brent removed the wrapping and presented the chocolate to Porcupine. 
It was resorting to see the flicker of excitement in the dog's eyes as he tried to make sense of his special gift. I then observed the joy the chocolate bar gave him, from the first sniff to the gentle manner to which he took it from Brent's hand, to the way he lay down with it and broke it up between his paws before wolfing down every piece, still licking his chops well after it was gone. He clearly savored the experience. Whether chocolate was unhealthy for him or not made very little difference at the time. When he was done, he looked at Brent and then to me, as if expecting another. No more, boy, I said, showing him my empty hands. Porcupine nuzzled me insistent, then looked up expectantly, his tail wagging. It's time, Brent, I said. Technically, you're not supposed to be a part of this, but I'm leaving this up to you. By the look on the kid's face, it was obvious he was conflicted, but he replied, I feel it's something I need to experience. All right, let's be done with it then. I reached down and lifted Porcupine up, then carried him to my arms as a shepherd carries a lamb. It had become my symbol to carry the animal on the last steps of the journey. Porcupine was heavy, but he didn't resist, and there was no struggle as we walked him through the bay, past his empty pen past all the other dogs and into the room where death and resurrection were one at the same. One and the same. I put Porcupine on the surgical table and gathered the instruments that would end his life. He sat there panting, looking quite content and utterly trusting. Are you sure you're okay with this? I asked Brent, who at this point looked absolutely sick. I can't handle this. What kind of vet will I be? Brent replied. Well, come over here then and pet him while I do this. Look in his eyes and tell him that he's a good boy and that you'll love him. Brent obeyed me and began putting the old time timer with trembling hands. Petting the old timer with trembling hands. In such cases, it feels like the dog understands what's going on because you project your own heartbreak into the, his situation. It's a, such a bizarre phenomenon because you believe the dog is sad about his fate and yet stoic about it at the same time. When I walked over with the needle in my hand, Brent stopped me for a second. It just occurred to me, he said, there's no dog waiting to take his place. That's true, but there will be. He looked confused. Well, shouldn't we delay this at least until another dog gets brought in? I mean, can't we extend his time? It's not about space, I explained. But sadly, we could give him an intermittent amount of time, but I know from experience that nobody's going to adopt him. Porcupine's not the adoptable type, and waiting around isn't going to change anything. Brent nodded in understanding, but I wondered how a young mind could wrap itself around such a cruel fact of life. Before he could provide further objections, I worked the needle into Porcupine. The dog gave only a small yelp and then composed himself, panting away and still seeming to enjoy the unusual attention. I stroked his fur myself, and it wasn't long before the light disappeared from his kind brown eyes. As he passed away, I whispered in his ear, I'll miss you, good friend. We'll see each other on the other side. Porcupine's spirit departed quietly in our presence. Afterwards, I put a white sheet over him, showing him the same respect people afford each other. 
I would go through the disposal process by myself later that night. Brent was quiet and had a blank, almost spaced out expression. Without a word, he left the room and closed the door gently behind him. It was pretty easy to tell that he needed some breathing room. When I checked on him a few minutes later, he was gathering his cleaning supplies and I could see by his body language that it was still best to leave him alone. Once I pushed my concern for him to the side, as always, my grief for the animal came upon me in full force. I went to the bathroom and splashed some cold water on my face, but that didn't stop me from experiencing the mixture of retching and hot tears that always followed such an occasion. No matter how you look at it, it was such a cheap, petty, and unjust end to a life. About an hour later, after I had a chance to compose myself, I approached Brent while he was cleaning a pen. Are you okay? Do you want to talk about it? I asked. I'm all right, he insisted, but didn't make any eye contact. Just leave me alone. It seemed fair to oblige him. For the rest of the night, we did our own thing. We were both lost in our own thoughts and feelings. It was hard to deny that the awkwardness had entered the picture that I had no real answers for anyway. By the time his shift was done, I could see that Brent had more color in his face. And so I decided to approach him but one last time while he was getting his stuff together to go home. This is about as bad as it gets, I said, trying to be reassuring. I've never felt such a pit in my stomach, he replied, struggling to find his voice. He still appeared kind of dopey and distracted. Nobody can be prepared for it, and you never become used to it. When I said this, he looked at me thoughtfully for a second, like he was struggling to articulate an idea that his eyes seemed to regain some of their lost intensity. The burden you mentioned, he began. I think I know what you mean now. Go on. Porcupine's life ended peacefully and without any fear, and yet afterwards we're left behind to shoulder the guilt. Brent was starting to understand me, but only partly. For me, the sacrifice was the whole process, from the start to the finish. Every night I sacrificed my personal resistance so that my spiritual eye could see, catch a silver glimmer of understanding in the empty black space. There's always a point where the burden is shifted, I explain. When they're adopted, that's the ideal shift in responsibility. But if they have to be put down, the weight of responsibility is on us. When it comes down to it, everything we do here is for them, even when they fail to find a home. But it's so unfair, Brent protested. It is unfair, I agreed, and I can see how affected you are. But just because you're sensitive doesn't mean you can't be a good vet. It's a calling, a vocation, not a job. And if you can't show people that you care about their pets, then you're meant to do something else. Being a vet is a very different kind of burden. I realize that now. In what way? I know that helping people part ways with their old and sick pets is part of the responsibility. I think I can handle that, but putting healthy dogs to sleep is extraordinarily painful. A knife through the heart. Porcupine didn't deserve this. No dog deserves this. Don't worry, kid. I won't ask you to participate again. Haven't you been listening? I want to help animals. The old, the sick, the abandoned. Well, 
If you can handle this, I'd say you're one step closer. I do have one question, though. What's that? What do you do to cope when you go home afterwards? How do you find comfort? I tell you, but you're not. You're going to laugh. I might not, Brent said, managing a weak smile. When it becomes too much for me to deal with, I consider the psychic on television who assures people their dog's souls are immortal and will be reunited with their families. And you believe her? I know she's right. How can you know for sure? Because of how desperately I want it to be true. Later that evening, I sat outside on the steps of the building. It wasn't raining anymore. It wasn't. The moon was out, grappling with the dark clouds. There was a breeze, and I could see the bluish glow of televisions emanating from the window of the houses along the block. There was a peaceful aura to the summer night. The opera of Dionysian crickets and Apollyon frogs could be heard faintly in the background. Rhythms and lyrics. So I just happened to be outside when Emily showed up with a picnic basket of food. She plopped down beside me on the steps, and there was no exchange of words between us for a few seconds. We need to talk about what happened today, she said, at last, opening the basket and passing me a soda. I have nothing to say, I replied, feeling uncomfortable and nervous. How was work tonight? I made okay tips. That's good. Another awkward pause followed. It was... Nice out tonight, so I thought I would bring you some food, she explained. That's very nice of you, I replied, a little wary of my words after what had been said earlier. We sat there for a few seconds, and I went through the basket. There was a couple of sandwiches, some cookies, and a yogurt, and a banana. It wasn't long before Emily got to the real intention behind her visit. Grant, I was wondering, do you ever expect one thing from me and say another? I shrugged. Because I do have certain expectations of you that I don't have of any other person. And I try to convince myself that you put me first. Sometimes I tell you to do things and yet I wish and hope that you'll do otherwise. I saw about, I thought about this. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I should have been a better listener all along. I, I know this now, Emily nodded. The day we first met on the bus to the Toronto Book Fair, you seemed to hang onto, every, onto my every word. We talked some, and then you let me read a few pages of the book, and we were going to pedal. You humored me about some of my poems. What a wonderful day we had there together. Yeah, I had never met a woman who had read so many books. And then when we began dating, you would pick me up, We'd go somewhere and talk about books and ideas, and we'd get some food and go for walks. Then you'd drop me off at home and nervously give me a kiss goodbye at the doorstep. Never in my life did I think that I'd find myself a gentleman. I was something, but I'm not sure I was a gentleman. Don't kid yourself. I couldn't believe that there could be a man so caring, so capable of listening, so content with the affections I was prepared to give. You cared about animals more than any person I've known. And you treated every person you met with great respect, right down to the children playing on the streets. So, I said, taking a swig of pop. For a time, I didn't know how I could be so happy in a relationship, she murmured. 
and at the same time I was living in a state of dread. I knew it would have to end, and I did everything to postpone it. I guess I sensed this. Since it was only a matter of time before I screwed things up, how could I expect such a relationship? You were deserving of something more. While I may not be that little girl who used to lock herself in the bathroom and find ways to bleed, I still have my problems. I'm selfish, though, and I've never been able to fully cut you loose. I've infected you, changed you for the worse. You're no longer the same person who used to show up at my doorstep and then kiss me goodnight. I'm sorry, I... Emily, our relationship is complex. There's a lot of gray. I never wanted to give you the impression that it was all or nothing. I didn't want to tack that type of guilt on you, nor did I want the responsibility. Emily nodded. And now, because we've tampered with the core of our friendship, I don't see how things can change, I concluded. Look it, I came here to apologize, and I've done that, Emily said sharply. What do you want of me? I demanded. I've respected your wishes. I've shared my home with you. I care for you as if you were my wife. I even let you drive the car all the time while I wear holes in my shoes. So what do you want of me? I was being uncharacteristically vocal, and this clearly was unsettling her. After a pause to reclaim her composure, she said very plainly, I want to get away. I want to go anywhere but here. I'm just so tired. I just wanted to end. Us, you mean? I asked, feeling a bit queasy. Don't pretend you don't know what I'm talking about, Emily warned, her sad, angry eyes fixed on mine. End of chapter two.